look at your notes. If you look at your notes, you see kind of where we have been in our study of Elijah. This is our fourth lesson. Some of you are just now coming in, and that's great because you're going to see a review of the first three lessons. Here's what we've seen so far. We've seen the width of the theological context of Elijah's life. We've seen that even though Elijah is found in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, his life stretches from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And I believe that Elijah and Moses are the two witnesses that appear in the book of Revelation before the second coming of the Lord. But what we saw was Elijah was an extraordinary but ordinary guy. And we're going to see that again today. Second lesson, we saw the wickedness of the historical context. And we saw the spiraling down of the idolatry of King Solomon to the uh, heresy of King Jeroboam down to the apostasy of King Ahab. And we saw that Elijah remains loyal even in the worst of times. Times like the days that we are living in. In fact... King David asked in Psalm 11.3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that really is a great summation of the historical uh, context of Elijah. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then last week we saw Lesson 3, the warfare of the spiritual context of his times. It's a struggle between Team Baal in this corner, and Team Yahweh in this corner. And we saw that Elijah, as a prophet of God, represents the loyal remnant who worship Yahweh in the war of worldviews. It's interesting in Psalm 11, when David asks, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In verse 4 of Psalm 11, he answers the question this way. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. God is on his throne. And that's what Elijah's life represents. That's what Elijah knew, and we're going to see that today. That even in the worst of times, God is on his throne, God is in control, but God is using, as he's using our day, he's using our worst of times to test the loyalty of our hearts. And lest you think that all of this is old history in the past, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Now, Revelation chapter 2, we're not going to study this as much as I just want you to see. This is the last mention of Jezebel, and it's by the risen Lord. And I just want you to understand, people pit this God of the Old Testament against the loving Jesus of the New Testament, and that is bad theology. Because the God of the Old is the God of the New, and the, 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 the Lord uh, God of Israel is Jesus, the I Am God. Because listen to what the risen Lord... This is the risen Lord speaking to the church in Thyatira. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, 
who has eyes like a flame of fire. In other words, he has a holy evaluation that sees all things. And his feet are like burnished bronze. Those are feet of judgment that trample down the unrighteous. So right there, this idea that Jesus is all love is thrown out the, out, you know, he's love, but he's also holiness, righteousness. He's salvation, but he's also judgment. Look at verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than the first. This is a mature, growing church. Look at verse 20, though. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants, my faithful, my loyal servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So the spirit of Jezebel, the spirit of Ahab, the warfare between the worldviews is still going on today in the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows about it. Now look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent. So, Jesus is holy, but He's also gracious. He's allowing, just as, he, he, just as God the Father did in the Old Testament, time for the immoral, time for the sinner, time for the unrighteous, time for the unbeliever to repent. But, she does not want to. 22, verse 22. Behold! Here's what happens to the unrepentant who claim they're apostates, they're, they're heretics, they're, they, they, they profess one thing and they live another. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And so he is holding out hope for repentance. Verse 23, and I will kill her children and with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am. There's the great I am, Yahweh, the Lord. I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But, now, there's the condemnation, that's the confrontation, but here's the, here's the, the affirmation, here's the comfort. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, those who are members of this church, who do not hold this teaching, who have not hold the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Just don't tolerate it. Just don't tolerate it. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces and as I have also received authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow, that's some heavy stuff. We could get into that more. I just want you to see that we're going to go back to history now, but understand that history is being played out in the present in the church of Jesus Christ. So now what do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, here's where we go. Now, finally, Elijah. Now, Elijah. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Hope you've already opened them. Turn with me to 1 Kings 17.1. 1 Kings 17.1.
And uh, this is what we're going to study today. In fact, we're going to study one verse. In fact, we're going to study one half of one verse today, okay? Because there's so much in it. Let's look at 1 Kings 17.1. Now, Elijah. Now, you can circle that now and understand now in this theological context, in this historical context, in this spiritual context. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Wow. Now, Elijah, boom! All of a sudden, he shows up like a thunderbolt from the hand of the storm god Baal. But he doesn't come from a false god. He comes as a follower of the one true God. And he just, boom, he just kind of shows up out of nowhere in the presence. It doesn't say how he got into Ahab's presence. It doesn't even tell us where they're at. We presume it's at the palace. All of a sudden, Ahab is going about his immoral, wicked leadership of Israel, gloating in his success and his power, and boom, now Elijah appears. Now, this, this one verse separates in two parts. You have the first part, the man, in the first part of the verse, and then you have his message. Today, we're going to look at the man. The next lesson, we'll look at the message. And so, what kind of man was Elijah? And we're going to see that Elijah was a man like us, and he was a man of God. He was a man like us, and he was a man of God. Let's first look at Elijah as a man who was like us, sort of, okay? Remember, this guy's an extraordinary, ordinary dude. And we're going to see that again. First thing that we see here is his home. He's a Tishbite. That sounds scary. He's a Tishbite from the Gilead region. And that's really all we know about this guy. And, and, and guess what? We don't even know where Tishbe is. We don't even know where Tishbe is. Uh, we don't really know. We're not sure what tribes he's from. It doesn't say what tribe. The one thing that we know is that he's from Gilead. And if you look there in your notes, that uh, Gilead is on the east side of the promised land. Here's the promised land. Israel up here in the north and Judah down here in the south. But on the east side, we have Gilead. Now, there were two and a half tribes that settled on this east side and didn't enter into the promised land. So we don't know if he's from the tribe of Gad or the tribe of Manasseh. We just don't know. What we do know is he's from this Gilead region. In fact, some of your Bibles, the New American Standard says he's a settler of this land. Others just say he's from Tishbe in Gilead. The point is this, we're not even sure if his parents were originally from this area or they settled. The one thing we know about his home is that he was from Gilead, and we know this, Gilead means rough and rocky or uh, raw. And that's the kind of land it was. 
In fact, there's a picture there you have in your notes. It's rocky, it's rough, it's a mountainous region. In other words, Elijah was a rough and ready mountain man. That's how I picture him, and we're going to see that plays out. Here's the point. Here's what I want you to know about his home. There's a spiritual mystery around his origins. I mean, all we know is he's kind of from this rough area, but we don't know who his parents are. We don't know who his tribe. It's like he just shows up with no beginning and no end. In fact, he's going to leave the same way he he shows up. He poof, he's there in front of Ahab, and boom, he's going to be taken back to heaven uh, by a chariot, we're going to see. He's kind of like Melchizedek. Melchizedek in the Old Testament was a guy that just shows up in Abraham's life. And according to Hebrews 7, he's without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. In other words, Elijah kind of like this, this type of a prophet that will fit in any time period. And that's why John is like Elijah. That's why the two witnesses are like Elijah. In other words, there's spiritual mystery surrounding this very human individual. And remember, he is John the Baptist came like him. Luke 180 says, and the child, referring to John the Baptist, the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance. So Elijah is living out here in the desert, mountainous region of Gilead, and, and John the Baptist lived in the wilderness as well until they both suddenly appeared. Second thing I want you to see about Elijah the man is his hairiness. Yes, his hairiness. He, he was a hairy man that liked to wear leather. Okay, that should grab your attention there. He was a hairy guy that liked to wear leather. In 2 Kings 1.8, 2 Kings 1.8, a group of men describe meeting a guy who looked like this. He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. Now, that's just fascinating to say. He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And Ahab says, it is Elijah the Tishbite. In other words, all you had to do in, in, in the day, in the time that Elijah lived is say, hey, I saw a hairy dude with a leather belt. And everybody would say, got to be Elijah, got to be Elijah. Now, here's what's interesting about this hairiness, which is just fascinating on its own. Uh, it, it's the, the Hebrew word means owner of hair. The Lord of the hair. Uh, And it was a figure of speech. Like, if you really had something in abundance, then you were the Lord of it, right? So, you know, the the Lord of the dance, right? I mean, no one can outdance the Lord of the dance. Well, no one could be more hairy than Elijah because he was the Lord of the hair. Okay, now the question becomes... The question becomes, is it hair of an animal because he was wearing a hairy garment? Or is it the hair of his skin? Is he the lord of the hair because he wears animal skin, animal fur, like a mountain man would? Or is he lord of the hair because he's just one of those really hairy dudes, right? Okay, we don't know. We don't know. 
Um, and in fact, it's interesting, when you don't have to know Hebrew to see that there's a question about this, because if you look at the English translations, the New American, the Net, the New King James, and the Christian Standard Bible all interpret it as him being a hairy man. But if you look at your ESV or the NIV, they interpret it as a hairy garment. Now, you know, so here's the thing. I think what helps us is to know he's from this mountainous region, but also that John the Baptist comes in the spirit, power, and likeness of Elijah. Because if you go to Matthew 3, in Matthew 3 it says, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. These guys are crazy. Well, the reason that's locusts and wild honey, if you're living in the desert, you eat off the insects of the land. In fact, locusts are very protein and very delicious, so I hear. Uh, And so you ate locusts and you ate honey that you found naturally uh, around you. So I think, I think really it probably lends to he wore a hairy garment. So I don't know. I've got Hagrid there for you Harry Potter fans. And then my, my favorite, two favorite mountain men of all, Jeremiah Johnson, just gives you a feel that when Elijah showed up, He made a statement just by his appearance, his hair. Who knows? We don't know. Now, here's what I want you to get out of this. First of all, think about the spiritual mystery about his home and his background. And then I want you to understand all this idea of living in the wilderness and living off the land and not being a part of, you know, living outside of the promised land. There is spiritual loyalty represented in this wild garb, represented by John the Baptist, not being associated with the false hypocrisy of the temple. Elijah, not being a part of the apostasy of Ahab. The point that we're supposed to get from this is God has sent a man, an ordinary man, but he's extraordinary due to his loyalty to God. And God is going to use this man, Elijah, to remind us that we need to be set apart. When, when, when people profess to know Jesus and live immorally, we are not to tolerate that. We are not to celebrate that. We are to lovingly confront that. Now, I may sound harsh right now. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm trying to break through to understand that the loving, compassionate thing is to live apart from the apostasy around us. And the lovingly, graciously, mercifully engage and confront and call to repentance. Elijah lived apart. And you don't have to be hairy. And you don't have to eat locusts. You don't have to be weird you will stand out in our society today, both among Christians and unchristians, by just living a godly life. You will stand out. And when you start talking about God, and when you start calling people to repentance and faith in God, you will stand out even more. And that's the idea. We see this when we get to the third thing, his heritage. 
his heritage. If there, we don't know much about his home. We're not even sure whether he was hairy due to his skin or animal skin. But there's one thing we do know. We know his heritage because his parents named him Elijah. And Elijah means my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. I think this is what God wants us to focus on. Not, not how he was dressed. That was something that helped people in his day. I can't relate to that. I'm not a hairy man, and I don't like wearing fur and leather. Okay? I can't relate to that. But his heritage is something we can all relate to. It's something we can all strive for. The witness of Elijah's parents in naming him, my God, I mean, here, here the, the child is born, and it, he's placed in his father's hands. At eight days, he is to be circumcised. He's placed in his father's hands, and his father says, his name is, my God is Yahweh. That's a statement. That's a statement. That's a prayer. Perhaps a prediction, a hope, a dream, a desire. It is a lifestyle. My God is Yahweh. And so I want you to see five things about his heritage. The, the witness of his parents naming him that in the worst of times. You've got to remember, these are times of apostasy. Calls us to be witnesses in five ways. Number one. It calls us to be courageous witnesses. Courageous witnesses. Why do I say that? This was the worst of times, and his parents are willing to make a bold statement about their faith and their loyalty. Look, everybody around is running after Baal. Everyone around is bailing, pardon the pun, Jim, on Yahweh. And his parents are standing up and saying, Every time I'm going to call my son in for dinner, I'm making a statement to my neighbors. My God is Yahweh. Dinner's ready. Number two, it calls us to be a correct witness. It calls us to be a correct witness. This wasn't just a name they made up. It was sound doctrine. Yahweh is the one true God. Yahweh should be everyone's God. This is sound doctrine. This is biblical truth. Uh, they didn't just look up in a baby book. Nothing wrong with that. They didn't check out the most popular names in Gilead or definitely the most popular names in Israel because the most popular names in Israel would have had Baal attached to them. El Baal. My God is Baal. No, not El Baal, Elijah or Eli Baal, Eli Baal. I don't know. I don't know Hebrew enough to play with that. But the point is, it would have been my God is Baal, which is false doctrine. So we need to be witnesses, but we need to be witnesses to the God of the Bible, not the God of our imagination, not the God of our desire, not the God that will be popular with people around us. We need to be witnesses of the one true God. Number three. It calls us to be consistent witnesses. It calls us to be consi consistent witnesses. Why do I say that? Well, it's one thing for his parents to say, this is your name, 
my God is Yahweh. It's another thing for Elijah to live that way. And yet, when we study Elijah's life, he was consistent. His walk matched, matched his talk. And his life lived up to the name that his parents gave him. Okay? He was consistent. You know, so, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, it, it's, it's like uh, uh, someone... Uh, you know, it, it's it's like someone being named Jesus, Jesus, and then living like the devil. You know, you know, it, 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 you know. So it, it would be crazy to say, "Hey, Elijah, hey, my God is Yahweh. What are you doing here in the Baal temple?" You see, you see, he lived up to his name. Number four, it calls us to be convicting witnesses. Our witness. For the Lord should be convicting to those who cannot say they believe in Jesus. They cannot say that they live for the one true God. Can you imagine being in the palace of Ahab and Jezebel, who you know talked about this guy almost on a daily basis, basically cursing his name. But every time Ahab and Jezebel had a conversation about Elijah, they would be saying this, that my God is Yahweh really aggravates me. Have you seen or heard what my God is Yahweh has done today? I mean, every time these unbelievers were confessing what they should be really believing. And every time they cursed and worked against him, they were working against the one true God. So the point being, our witness ought to be such that it convicts others who don't, you know, our love for others ought to convict unloving people. Our grace for even Tom Brady, hate to pick on you, Rick, but I got to. Our grace for Tom Brady ought to be convicting to people that are ungracious. Are you with me? Our, our loyalty to our God ought to convict those who are disloyal to a false God. It, we should have a convicting, you know, is anybody convicted by our presence in the workplace? Is anybody seeing a difference in our entertainment that we enjoy and talk about? Is there a difference in our social media, our likes and our dislikes, our tone and our attitude? And then number five it calls us to be compassionate witnesses. Because I'm telling you, right now, right now, even right now, I feel the pressure. Well, the, you, you don't love people. You're not being loving. Well, I'm first to admit, I need to grow in loving. You know, I, and, and last time I checked in the New Testament, Paul would say to churches, you love like crazy, but you need to grow in it. Okay, we all need to grow in that. But you've got to understand, when you're living in the worst of times, and when people profess, and, and I'm talking more about people who profess to know Jesus, not so much about unbelievers. I'm talking about people who profess to know Jesus. And when they celebrate, as you, we've seen, infanticide, when they celebrate sexual perversion, when they tolerate it, Jesus says, I have this against you. And he's saying it in love. And the loving thing to do 
in the midst of apostasy is to speak truth and to live loyalty, live with loyalty. And so Elijah, by his very name, was a loving witness that said, turn from your false gods to serve my God, who is Yahweh. That's just good stuff. All because two parents, I guess there's always two when you have parents. All because some parents had the conviction to be bold witnesses and pass that on by the grace of God to their children. Wow, that's just good stuff. uh, Fourthly, his heart. His heritage is seen in his name. His godliness is seen in his heart. He had a heart that burned with zeal for the Lord. I'm not going to dwell on this. We've mentioned it before. We're going to study it in depth. But Elijah could say before the Lord in 1 Kings 19, he could say before the Lord, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of armies, the sovereign God who rules. I have been very zealous. And God didn't say, no, you haven't. God agreed with him. This guy had a passion and a heart. And he had a heart for God. Finally, his humanity. James 5 reminds us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It was filled with peaks and valleys, just like the land that he came from in Gilead. We're going to see this guy. He's going to have high highs. He's going to have low lows. But through it all, he says one thing consistently. My God is Yahweh, and he has a zeal and a passion and a loyalty and a fidelity to the Lord that we should all, we should all aspire to. So... We know very little of his home. We're not sure if he was hairy or not. But two things we can be sure of. His heart and his humanity. Elijah was a man like us in his humanity. And we can be a man like him in his heart for God. Is that good news? He was a man like us in his humanity. And we can have a heart like his that burned for God. So what kind of man was Elijah? Let's look at the second part of this. Elijah was a man of God. Elijah was a man of God. Elijah was a prophet, perhaps the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, second only to Moses. But I think we're first to see him simply as a godly man. And here's how I want you to see that he was a man of God. He was a man of God who stood in God's presence. He stood in God's presence. Okay? Now that refers to his prophetic function, but I want you to understand it also refers to his posture in life. His He lived life as one who was constantly in the presence of God because he was and we all are. So, it, ta- it, it we're going to see It speaks of his prophetic function, but it's his posture in life. It's the way he viewed his life. 
So the first thing we want to see about him is that he was a godly man. Now, if you look at what he says in verse 17, what's more important than his heritage, his home, I mean, more important than his home and his hairiness, is his relationship with God. And we see it in when he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. That tells you everything about this guy. So the first thing I want you to see is that phrase, in whose presence I stand, before whom I stand. Now, who was he literally standing in front of? Ahab. King Ahab. Who was, who, and who had the power in that little relationship? Ahab. But he's reminding Ahab, he's reminding himself, and he's reminding us, the one I really stand before is the one who's really in charge, and that's Yahweh. All right? And so we learn five things about him in this way. And we'll explore these more next week. First of all, he believed in the living God. He believed in the living God. Ahab had introduced the lifeless, dead idolatry of Baal, and Elijah shows up and says, I believe in the living God. My God lives. Your God is dead, and the rest of our little relationship, Ahab, is going to prove that point. He believes in the living God. Number two, he worshipped the covenant God. He worshipped the covenant God. He not only says, I believe in the living God, my God lives, but my God is the Lord, all caps in your Bibles usually, equals Yahweh, equals the I am God. And we've taught about that enough in this class. You should know what we're talking about. We're talking about the God of the covenants. The God who spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, From you, the seed of woman, will come a redeemer. The God who spoke to Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham and said, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I am going to bless you and your seed to be a blessing to all nations. It's the God who spoke to Moses on Mount Ararat. Or Ararat, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Noah. He spoke to Noah after wiping out the world and made a covenant, renewed the covenant with Noah. He spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave the law for his covenant people whom he had redeemed out of Egypt. He spoke to David and made a covenant with David and said, From you a son will come who will reign and rule as king over Israel, to be a blessing to all the nations. Elijah is standing before Ahab and saying, I worship the covenant God who you defile, whom you despise, whom you are defying. I am worshiping the covenant God, the promise keeper. Three, he identified with the people of God. It's the God of Israel. He says, I... And this is interesting. Who is he speaking to? The king of Israel. But it's in quotes, right? Because he, they're not, he's not leading them as God's covenant people. He's saying, look, 
My God is the God of Israel, not Baal. Yahweh is the right God. And I identify with the remnant that you are persecuting. I identify with the prophets whom your wife is trying to exterminate through genocide. He identified with the people of God. Do you realize that in, this, in, in the days of Elijah, the number one enemy of Israel is this, the people of Assyria up in the north who will, will eventually take Israel into exile out of God's judgment. The people of Israel in this time referred to the land of Israel, not as Israel, but as the land of Omri, Ahab's father in all of it. In other words, the unsaved people no longer see the God of Israel. They no longer say it's the land of the Lord. It's no longer Israel, the land of the covenant God. It is the it is the land of Omri. And a, and and uh, Elijah is here to say, look, my lot is cast with the small remnant, most of which is in hiding, by the way. Not making a big scene, not in the Israeli, the Israeli papers, not being celebrated on Israeli social media. The quiet, faithful people who are basically underground. That's who I identify with at the risk of his life. Number four, he lived in the presence of the Lord. He lived in the presence of the Lord, before whom I stand. I've already talked about. Number five, he obeyed the call of God. We, we're not told how he got there. But it's evident from what he's saying, who sent him. God sent him and said, in whatever way he did, you go to Ahab, and he said, I'm there. Now, we know this because the pattern from here on out is the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, go, and then the text says, Elijah went. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, go here, and Elijah went there. And so this guy is obedient. Now, because he was obedient and because he stood in God's presence, number two, he was a man of God who was sent as God's prophet. He was sent as God's prophet. So here's what I want you to understand. Man or woman today, you may not be, well, you will not be called to be a prophet or prophetess of God. You start calling her a prophetess, you're like Jezebel, okay? God is not calling you to be a prophet, but He is calling you to stand in God's presence like Elijah did. He is calling you to believe the living God, worship the covenant God, identify with the people of God like you are doing this morning, living in the presence of God 24-7, and obey whatever God leads you to do through His Word. But here's the uniqueness. So let me tell you two things. We're just going to talk a little bit about prophets, okay? Because this is who He is, and there is a uh, blue sheet that some of you had at your table. They're there that talks to you about the kings versus the prophets, okay? So this is kind of set you up for the rest of our study. But here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to see. Now Elijah, boom, this guy appears. And here's what we want to see. 
His appearance is not introduced, but it shouldn't be unexpected. His appearance is not introduced, but it shouldn't be unexpected. Why do I say that? Because already in our study of of the kings of Israel, these seven wicked kings, we see that every time we see this pattern where the king rises according to, to Yahweh's sovereign will, the king begins, reigns with a proud heart. The king begins to sin and break the covenant. And Yahweh sends a prophet. And the prophet confronts out of grace. We keep seeing this pattern. So even though Elijah is not called a prophet in this passage, we already know from chapter 16, verse 34, that Ahab has won the biggest sinner contest among these seven kings. He's the biggest sinner of seven kings that went before him, six kings that went before him. And so we should expect what to appear, or who. We should appear a prophet. And sure enough, Elijah, though he's not called one, though we're not told about his prophetic call, he is not introduced, but he's not unexpected. A prophet has shown up. Number two, his role as a prophet is not explained, but it should be understood. His role as a prophet is not explained, but it should be understood. And I want to help you understand it. Now, why do I say this? It's not explained. Because typically, here's if you've read much of the Old Testament, here's how prophets get introduced. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah son of Amoz, son of so-and-so, in the reign of king so-and-so, and that's how they're introduced. Well, he's not introduced this way. But we should understand him to be a prophet because everything he does is what a prophet would do. Okay? So let me give you a description of a prophet, a definition. Here's, here's Fill in your blanks. Here's what they mean. Prophets were covenant protectors. Covenant protectors, or you could say mediators. In other words, I don't, I, 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 I don't want to use the word policeman, but that, that sounds rigid. Sorry, Dane. Sounds rigid, and, 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 and we don't like them unless they're Dane. And, um, but what is your, what's the policeman's motto, Dane? Test time. My motto? Not... <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, let's 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 shoot for the ideal that you were taught in school. Serve and protect, and that's what that's what prophets do. Thank you. You're all. I, 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 one day I will learn to quit calling on you because you, you are never helpful to me. Uh, so, so, protect. That's really what they do. They serve and protect the covenant. All right. Does that help you? I hope that helps you. Here's how they do it. And they're sent by Israel's promise-keeping God. See, God's people may break the covenant, but God is Yahweh, the promise-keeper. He keeps His covenant, and so He sends His prophets to be covenant protectors to serve and protect. Uh, how do they do that? They do two things. Who confronted covenant breakers and comforted covenant keepers. Confronted covenant breakers and comforted covenant keepers. So again, uh, prophets are not all judgment. They are not all confrontation. They're also comfort. 
It just depends on whether you're a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker. It's the same thing with your parents or it's the same thing with policemen. When you're driving the speed limit, you know, Gwen's like, ah, there's a cop there, there's a cop, there's a cop. And I'm like, Gwen, I'm driving the speed limit. Leave me alone. I have nothing to fear. I'm a covenant keeper. Okay? But when you're a covenant breaker, what do you do when you see that police car? You hit the brakes, yeah. And then they immediately see that on their radar and say, bad boy, bad boy. What are you going to do? Okay. So, confronted and comforted. And they did this in two ways. They did it by foretelling the future fulfillment of God's promises of judgment and salvation. They foretold. In the video, they said they're not fortune tellers. Well, no, we don't go to them to say, who am I going to marry? But they are foretellers. They predict the future and they say, look, because you've broken the covenant and God said he would bring this judgment, here's when the judgment is coming. They were foretellers and they were forthtellers, preaching to his people to repent before judgment falls and remain loyal until deliverance comes. So foretelling is predicting, forthtelling is preaching. And these are the two things these guys did. So here's what they preached. If you're a covenant breaker, repent before the judgment comes. If you're a covenant keeper, remain faithful until deliverance comes. Because guess what? Covenant breaker and covenant keeper are both very thirsty during this time when there's no rain. So everyone suffers together, but some suffer with judgment coming. Others suffer with deliverance coming. All right. Do you got everything? Are you tracking? All right. Now, what are the functions of the prophet? I just gave you those. You can read through those. Okay? Uh, that's just kind of me brainstorming. Uh, understanding the function of the prophets. Here's all the things they did. Very, they're, they're complex guys, but they're very simple. Okay, There was a man sent from God. His name was John. Well, the same is said of, of Elijah. So here's what I want you to do. First of all, I believe that in the preaching of God's Word, the teaching of it, the Spirit is already begun to apply this lesson to your life. I'm sure those of you that are open to what God has been saying through His Word, you already see application in your own life. But here I gave to you, I don't know, one, two, three, seven, seven applications out of this lesson that I think you'll see very clearly and are very relevant to where we live today. And I'm just doing that because one... I get a bang out of studying the Old Testament, and there's just all these applications. Two, it's a reminder that we don't unhitch from the Old Testament. The Old Testament has plenty to teach us. And I hope by the beginning passage from Revelation, you see that Jesus is the I Am God, and He has the same character, the same Holiness and the same compassion as the God of the Old Testament. Because they're one God. All right? So, take these applications. And they're really applications for being a man of God if you're a man. And being a woman of God if you're a woman. And pray through these. 
And I challenge you to read, take the reading guide and read through 1 Kings as we move through this. And I think maybe for the first time for some of you, the book of Kings will come alive because you're getting the context and you're seeing it as it relates to where we are today. Boy, that's, that was good stuff. Amen? Because we have a great God and He revealed it in a great Bible. I hope you're reading I hope you, you're living in the presence. I hope your posture this week will be a posture of, I stand before the living God and I basically say, your wish is my command. Let's pray. Father, we come. We are humbled. I know maybe some are discouraged. Maybe they didn't come from a spiritual heritage. My parents took me to church for which I'm thankful But there wasn't much there. But that's okay, because you're a God of new beginnings. And it starts today. What kind of legacy, what kind of heritage am I going to leave for the people around me, the people who love me, the people who will attend my funeral? What will they say? And Father, some of us are growing weary in well-doing, and I pray that we will persevere. I pray Elijah will comfort us, encourage us, And Lord, maybe some are struggling in unbelief or disobedience. And may we repent because God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You are a great and awesome God. We praise you now. We go upstairs to praise you with with our community, our assembly. We, We identify with your people now in praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good stuff today.